Hello, I'm Alex Rakeen. I'm a barrister at Thurton and Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined in the shed uh, virtually today by not one, but two people, which I think is a first actually, but I'm always keen to experiment. So in line with what I normally do in these things, I'm not going to introduce, I don't want to spend ages trying to introduce the people I'm speaking to. So I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves. Um, Usha, do you want to go first and then and then, and then Sarah? Thanks, Alex. Um, so my name is Usha and I'm Director of Partnerships and Services at Compassion in Dying. Um, we're a national charity and we help people to prepare for the end of life and ensure really that they remain at the centre and in charge of decisions about their health and care. And at Compassion in Dying, we support people through the whole process in terms of um, advanced care planning and um, shared decision making. So that might be starting from a... Um, uh, a, a vague wish about something um, somebody doesn't want to happen in the future, unpicking that through a series of conversations, helping them to record um, those wishes in some form of advanced care plan, like an advanced decision to refuse treatment, for example. Um, and then crucially, we also do quite detailed support to help people ensure that those wishes are respected when it matters. So that might be support with family members, um, for somebody who's lost capacity or support um, directly with an individual themselves. Brilliant, thank you all. We're going to unpick all of that. But Sarah, do you want to just introduce yourself as well? Thank you, Alex. Yes, I'm Sarah. I'm the clinical lead at Compassion in Dying. I've got a background in oncology, um, haematology and palliative nursing, and I draw on that experience on a daily basis when supporting people with their um, advanced care planning needs. And I also work very closely with our amazing policy team. And we feel like that's really the strength of our service is combining my clinical background and their in-depth policy knowledge when, when supporting people in that robust way. Brilliant, great. No, thank you. Well, thanks so much for, for both of you for joining, joining me. I mean, one of the things I, I'm gonna have a slightly more directed conversation than I occasionally do, just because we've got two of you. And so what, what I was really interested in exploring with you is thinking about what helps and then what gets in the way of using the Mental Capacity Act to try and project forward in terms of advanced planning and in terms of thinking um, about decision-making towards the end of life. So uh, that's the sort of focus of the conversation and then we can sort of see where it rolls from there. But I don't know, Usha, do you wanna, do you wanna kick off on, on your thoughts on that? And then we can- Yeah, thank you. Um... I think in terms of what helps, I've, I've kind of alluded to this already um, in, in my intro, but definitely one of the things that massively helps is time to have conversations with people. So um, some people that we work with will come to us. Something we hear a lot is, um, I don't want to be a vegetable, or um, very commonly we speak to people who have supported a family member, maybe a parent or a, a partner, who's had what they consider to be a bad death and they come to us knowing very clearly something that they want to avoid um, right. and what we will help them do um, is, 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 is draw out what they mean by that and these are like really really individualized conversations and I have to say um, I don't think I've ever had a, like two conversations that are the same um, with somebody and 
and these conversations do take time and sometimes people come to us and they say you know I want to make a they, they've heard of a living will and we explain what an advanced decision to refuse treatment is how it's legally binding how it works how it doesn't cost anything how we can help them help them do it and then there's this there's a kind of palpable sense of relief um that it's it doesn't have to be something that that's really complicated and the and and the support that they need is there but then they might go away and then they they'll call us up two weeks later or sometimes even we've had people six months later call us up and say right, I've had your form I've talked to my doctor now I've talked to my family members and I think I, I think I'm, I know I'm a bit clearer and can you help me do it and, and often they're really apologetic as well people say I'm so sorry it's taken so long you know to get me to a point of, of wanting to do it and and it does often take take time and, and skill to have those conversations with people so I think when people have the opportunity to have those detailed conversations in a way that's not rushed it's it's really meaningful and that I think is what um, makes uh, advanced care planning um, advanced decisions or advanced statements that are really like legally robust and clinically useful. I'm actually really glad that I'm really interested in legally robust and then it's the clinically useful. And actually, Sarah, I just wondered if I could turn to you because one of the things I'm always really interested in, in thinking about, and I, just, I don't know whether you can help me with, is you've got the advanced decision. It, it says all of these things, but actually it now comes time when that might or might not be relevant. And it's that bit mm-hmm. there, the kind of the rubber has hit the road. The person no longer has the capacity to make their decisions. I'm just, your take on, on you know, where, if you've got, a good ADRT, how that advanced decision, how that then tracks through. So do you mean how how that is implemented in practice in real time? Yes, I mean, I'm just interested in, in you know, in experiences. And it may be that the conversation is much as, well, actually, we've found that there are these barriers to advanced decisions actually, you know, tracking through with the person said, I didn't want this X, Y and Z. So I'm just sort of getting that sense of, you know, we've had the process, I mean, really, thank you, a really helpful description of the process of making, but the thing has been made and we're now, as it were, having to implement. And that, you know, that's yeah. a bit where we don't necessarily always hear quite so much about. I think there's an awful lot of different factors that we can cover, actually, at this yeah. point. We yeah. say, to start with, when we're supporting people, we tend to support them with our, with our form, with our document that's been we've created that with legal and health professionals so it's it's got all those required components but it's also written in plain English and I think that's the first really key thing to think about is um, when I compare that to a document drawn up by a solicitor they're quite often overly complicated and when you think about that as a clinician when I'm looking at those documents by comparison and trying to understand or interpret how you would follow that in potentially an emergency that you can see those barriers there, barriers when they're not clear and not specific enough, which is why we focus very heavily on helping people to translate what they want into very clear language in the Mm -hmm. form and very kind of, um, as Usha said, clinically robust, but just clear and specific enough. So I think the the completion of the document is really important in order to be actually possible to follow because we hear a lot, I don't want any treatment if I've lost quality of life. We've got to unpick what that means and actually make that something someone can follow in practice. Um, I think we've got amazing policy, really, we're at a time where we've got such empowering policy and legislation at the moment, but in terms of what's getting in the way, 
it's unfortunately that implementation it's the lack of knowledge when it comes to that policy and legislation in practice that we're seeing as a real barrier so perhaps clinicians sometimes have their personal view that the person might have changed their mind or they don't understand the legal um, frameworks these are barriers that we're coming across quite a lot and that's what's getting in the way when it comes to actually following these documents Sadly, I think we hear very often um, that like there's uh, what I would say absolutely is there's so many doctors and nurses who are brilliant at this, and almost every healthcare professional that we work with, they want to get this right. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think for a lot of doctors coming across advanced decisions is it, it doesn't happen every day, so so they don't really always know exactly how to react to it, um, and very sadly we do hear. Um, on a, you know, it's a small but significant number of calls that we get, examples where that advanced decision has come to be used. But like Sarah has already said, the person who's having to implement it is putting their own values into the situation and feeling like that person can't possibly have understood the consequences of that decision. So I'm not going to follow it. And I think that's where extra information within an advanced decision is really helpful. So like what we will help people do is say, right, this is the legal bit. These are the treatments that you want to refuse. But if you want to strengthen it and make it as watertight as possible, you need to paint a picture of who you are and why you're making these decisions. And that, I think that's what gives doctors the confidence to go, okay, I get it, I get this person. I get why they're wanting to refuse the treatment. Yeah, no, I think instinctively I can see that makes sense. I'd just be, I'd be super interested, Sarah, in, in your take on that as well. I mean, just that if you've got somebody, if you've got a situation where you've got a decision which you yourself find very difficult to understand mm-hmm. and a sort of very blank, this is the decision, one can see one version versus I find it difficult to understand, but I can see where the person is coming from because there's a story. I'd just be really interested in is... is is that something you come across? As you say, that you know, you should the, the, the doctor might find it or the clinician might find it easier to, to grasp or to get on board with if they see the story of the person. So we certainly we know that um people's wishes, they just say, I refuse life-sustaining treatment if I have um if I have dementia. What we're finding is clinicians say, oh, but does that really mean they don't want peg feeding? Would they really not want that? Oh, they probably didn't mean that. They probably didn't think that through. And so like Usha said, when they when they document in a statement that really clear um, sort of outline of what they're trying to avoid and add that context, it brings, yes, it brings that kind of um, detail that supports the clinician to feel, I think, comfortable with the decision. Because a lot of the time, I don't think they feel they can trust the person really thought it through. And I think that that sort of brings us to a wider problem that there's a lack of trust that people really know what they want in in a situation that they're not in now. Yes. I mean, (laughs) I am bound to say it's, and I'm actually very interested in your reactions to this. I mean, the Mental Capacity Act is drafted quite carefully to allow you to it to, the the advanced decision won't be valid valid if you have done something fundamentally inconsistent with it remaining your fixed decision and there's case law which suggests that is not just i have got capacity i'm now going to go and do something it is actually i've lost capacity 
but I'm manifesting something which shows it's different. So there is a, that, that, you know, how do you really know what you want? And then are you the same person? I'm sure I can see it's just wanting to come in here. And I really want, because I want your take on this, because I think it is, it's, you know, there's a really important discussion there. And it's kind of how one grapples with that in a way which allows people to project forward as best as possible. This is who I am. I think so. There's there's two ways that I could answer this question. One of those ways would be to get into this really detailed discussion of like, what if a person did this? What if a person said that? And 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 I'm up for that discussion. But I think it's also really important to step back and look at the conversations that we're having um, as a sector. And I hate the word sector because really, what does it mean? But. Um, and, and whether or not those conversations are helpful for moving us forward um, to a place where individuals are trusted to make their own decisions and are seen as leaders in decisions about their care. And I think that the, all those questions that you're asking are absolutely valid um, and really important. But I think it's also important to acknowledge their, um, those questions represent what our experience shows is a, is a minority of cases. And there's this huge, huge swathe of people that we know um, want to make decisions. They're, they're very clear what they want. When people come to us, you know, people are often, I mean, I think pandemic and what happened with um, DNA CPR decisions was really interesting because in the media, rightfully, the media was telling those, those stories of, of abuse, which was awful and shocking. But what it wasn't doing was telling the stories of the thousands of people who were calling our helpline saying, oh, I've, 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 I know what a DNA CPR order is now and I, I want one. You know, I know I don't want to be resuscitated. And so I think it's important that we're telling those stories as well and that we're, that we're not getting into this dangerous territory where something really empowering, which is what an ADRT is, 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 is slowly, like that, that empowering ethos of it is slowly being eroded because of these very important but academic conversations so and and I think like what I would really like to do is move us into a space where a lot of doctors see ADRTs as helpful because they are helpful as long as they're done properly with the right support and somebody's been supported to think through you know exactly the consequences of those, those decisions so you know if it was up to me that would be the conversation we were focusing on but i understand the nuances of and the yeah no no and I, I i want i very much want to have that i very much want to have the, the second conversation i think it's just one one of the things to, and i suppose one other way of putting it is it's it, it the cases which come to court are mm. by definition the really really difficult cases and so in one way one way of looking at it is it's right that the court is asked to look at those cases where it is genuinely really difficult to say is are we really comfortable this is this person's fixed decision but as you say those are exceptional or the vast majority of cases it's not it's not you don't want to be giving room for people to rampage through an advanced decision so well, we're not really sure about that and so one of the things that's really interesting to get your take on what is it which makes it that an advanced decision is is seen is recognised much more as this is this person's decision. Yeah. And I suppose, so it's, you know, it's, it's recognising their space for both, as it were, but it's it's that bit on, you know, is it about telling the story? Is it about, you know, 
saying I've completed it with a doctor, say, or, you know, it's those kind of things yeah. where you just get the clinician who might be on the receiving end going, actually, yeah, I, I get. And so it's those sort of things I'd be really interested in, in your collective takes on. If it was up to me, we would be in a situation where we had a national form that, that was recognised that doctors just knew what it was as soon as they picked, as soon as they picked it up. Um, and, and importantly, the public would trust that form as well. And in that form, there would be the legal bit, which had the refusals of treatment, and then this contextual yeah. section where people were encouraged to write it. I mean, I would say we, we also do encourage people to get their doctor to sign their advanced decision form, not to certify that they have capacity, just to prove that they've had a conversation about it. And the reason we've included that in Compassion in Dying's form is because I've had countless conversations with doctors where they've said that makes them feel a bit better to know that they've spoken to their GP or know that they've had a conversation. So I think I think there are lots of things we can do to make advanced decisions better to prevent that happening in the future. Because, yeah, I mean, of course, completely understand if somebody wrote a form 10 years ago and then they've, you know, carried on with their life and their life's changed. You do have a, you know, a duty to think, OK, let's look at this person now. Um, but I think there are things we can do to strengthen it. What, would you add anything, Sarah? I mean, I think it, it's it's not a huge amount, but I would say my big concern is there's still too much variation in terms of the general understanding of mm -hmm. what the requirements are. So I, you're right in everything you said, and I agree about your kind of proposed suggested changes for the future to make things better. But at the moment, the situation we're in is that still too often, not all the time, I'm not generalising, but too often, um, there's just so much misinformation about what the requirements are now. So if clinicians think that a solicitor or another clinician has to have been involved in the process and therefore they don't need to follow it or they shouldn't trust it because they haven't, that kind of rather basic lack of knowledge around the MCA legislation means that things fall down and, and that's happening all too often not all the time but it's happening all too often and that undermines the whole process despite that person being absolutely clear and rigid and clear on their views and consistently so yeah uh, yeah I mean it's that you're giving me shades of um discussions around the introduction of advanced choice documents into the mental health act which, as you know, the government is very interested in and, and the draft mental health bill is including effectively advanced decisions into the mental health legislation. And, and one of the questions there is, you know, should you have uh, the advanced decisions in the mental health context accompanied by a confirmation the person's got capacity? You know, you don't have them for physical health ones, but should there be a statutory requirement? And it immediately divides people because for one set of people, it's, an insurance policy to maximize the chance that no one unpicks it on the basis this person didn't have capacity. For others, it's immensely discriminatory because why should we be having to prove we've got capacity? And it's that similar, I'm hearing in a similar sort of way, you've got the kind of, well, do you do the insurance policy to maximize the chance? Or are you by consistently having the insurance policy having, well, if this person hasn't taken out this insurance policy, well, they didn't really mean it. I mean, it's a really, I mean, it's a genuinely, it's quite finely balanced at one level as a discussion, but it's, I mean, it's super interesting to hear your, you know, your two takes on it. Usha? Yeah, no, I, I, there's, there's, ma there's massive parallels between what you said and um, the work that we do. I think it's really interesting that in a previous version of our advanced decision form, I think it was about, about eight years ago, we did have a box 
for a GP signature. And um, we, we did it. We added that in for all of the reasons that we've just talked about. Um, but we we took it out because it acted as a barrier when it came to implementing it. Because if a clinician had that form with a box for a doctor's signature and it was empty, then it made them trust it less. So now there's a space for a doctor to sign, but it's not explicit that's what it's for. So somebody can get a doctor to sign it, but then if they don't, it doesn't make the form look weaker. And it is this balancing act between, you know, do you do, do you go to absolutely all the lengths you can to make sure it's followed versus why should you, as long as you're following the legislation? And I think this, this conversation also plays through to the recording of advanced decisions. And I think that's a huge barrier in terms of what, what gets in the way. So um, I cannot understate the impact of a person's advanced decision not being known about when it matters and when they lose capacity. It's awful. It, it, when somebody has gone through the whole process of documenting their wishes and then that form is not known about and therefore not followed, um, the, the impact on the quality of that person's death and also the impact on the um, experience of, of that family member and their bereavement process is, is huge. And we have similar conversations with people about recording, they, especially people who don't have family and are isolated. You know, someone who doesn't have um, a brother who's going to turn up at A&E with a form in their hand and wave it in front of people's faces. And, and it's... I find it heartbreaking that, that, that some people are just naturally like, very health literate, um, very able to advocate for themselves, very articulate, and they will do everything that we suggest, like find their um, call their local ambulance trust and ask them to, to hold a copy, um, bang on the door of their um, GP practice to make sure that the fact they have one is up, um, uploaded is recorded on their summary care record you know send a copy to their local hospital and they'll do all of these things and we know that will help um, but there's some people who just can't do that for, for themselves um, and the support isn't available for there isn't, isn't there for them to help them do that and, and we do as much as we can as an organization but there should absolutely just be a, um, a kind of universal um, register of these forms that's shareable across geographical boundaries. And, and, it, and, it's, and we're not there with that and with EPACs at the moment. And I think that's another huge barrier. Yeah, Sarah, yeah. thoughts there? Um, I had sort of points I wanted to raise all the way through that. So I'm kind of <laughs> lost on the track. I think going, going back a little bit, just in terms of supporting people and kind of um, insurance policies, I would just like to add that we we tailor the support we give depending on the caller and the person we're speaking to. So a lot of people, there's just no reason to be concerned about adding a capacity assessment and thinking that that's a requirement for them or that they would be questioned in that way. But for those that will be, we might suggest it or think about how they can access that. And it's just about tailoring the situation according to who we're speaking to. And if they can get someone like a GP to witness the form, well, it's not a requirement, but it might really help you know, for them in terms of it being followed. So we, that's the kind of beauty, I think, of our support and working, coming from a clinical perspective. And, you know, I working in wards and clinical environments, you don't have the time to, to provide that level of in-depth support, but now we can. Now we can mm. really focus on what they need personally. Um, 
but otherwise yes I agree with with everything you just said in terms of there's a lot of work to be done yeah I mean I think it's why there is no central register I mean there's a question people I mean have been asking forever and you know given the joys of digitization and all of these things you might have thought it would be possible to include but I think that's just a question people are just going to you know, keep having to bang the drum um I mean it's not just the advanced decisions it's also actually it for me as much as anything else it's the advanced statements you know I want it's not just that I don't want it it's both of those are you know are incredibly important and of course You've got things like respect and you've got processes, which is a clinical led, which are trying to think about that. But where you've got the person setting their own goals, I mean, that needs to be somewhere. So I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think really frustratingly, we are running out. Of, we are definitely beginning to run out of time, uh, not just because on Zoom's thing, but also on our, my self-imposed time limit. And there are just so many aspects, so many things we could have covered. And I'm, I, I, I know that many people would go, oh, I wish we'd thought about this. We wish we'd thought about that more. But I don't know if either of you, if there were kind of any last thoughts you just wanted to share, I might just start with Sarah, if I may, and, and Anusha, just in terms of any last observations. And what I will do is I will put a link at the bottom of our conversation to, to the Compassion in Dying website so that you can you can see where the, the form is, so the one we've been talking about. Thank you. Sarah, yeah, I think we've talked a lot about conversations and one thing we're really clear on at Compassion in Dying is that whilst conversations are essential and a really key part of the advanced care planning process, we're doing people a disservice by focusing entirely on that. And I think that's something that is overly focused on. So we do support people with that complete process. So we'll start with conversations and they'll continue through the process, but we support people based on their wishes to then reinforce that and bolster those wishes with robust advanced care plans. And I think there's work to do around ensuring people reinforce what they want and document it really clearly so that those wishes are known about in real time when it matters. Um, because again, drawing on clinical um, experiences, what, what is so difficult to navigate clinically, and I have every sympathy with people in those moments, is with family members saying different things or um, ambiguity. So completing that process and documenting is so essential to um, adequately support people. Brilliant, thank you, Sarah. Usha? Um, absolutely. Um, reinforce what Sarah's just said about documenting um, and I think I'd love to just end on a point of um, the importance for because I'm aware a lot of people listening to this will be working directly with people like in a clinical or a legal or a, um, you know policy uh, capacity and I'd love to end by talking about the importance of just demystifying the process for people in terms of advanced care planning. So whether that's advanced statements, DNA CPRs, you know, advanced decisions, LPAs, um, it's so helpful when um, people understand that there is support available to do it, that it doesn't have to cost you anything. Um, and that, uh, you know, there, there's forms available that can, can support you the whole way through the process. Um, and it isn't something that, that has to be scary. Um, I think the more we can do to, to kind of move the public to a point of kind of understanding their rights to make these decisions and that filling out these forms will help to make those um, wishes be respected, the more we can do to make those things happen, the better as a sector, use that word again that I hate. Brilliant, well, 
Thank you so much, both of you. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. And I think this, even by the standard of, of these normal shared conversations, this was just really, really obviously exposing the tip of an iceberg of a whole host of different issues. But I agree with you. It's, uh, and I, I, I do agree entirely that the, the, the not going down too many complicated rabbit holes at the, acknowledging they're complicated rabbit holes, but actually that the core ideas are quite simple and people are able to access them. That's, that's the real, I, I, I agree with you entirely. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time. And I'm going to press stop now. <laughs>